Okay, please take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17 this morning, the doctrine of Balaam in the church of Pergamos. We're in the third of seven churches unto whom Jesus wrote in the second and third chapter of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ephesus was a passionately separated church who in the midst of their battle against the world had lost focus on the object of the battle. They had lost their first love. Perhaps they began seeing the battle itself as the end all rather than a means to the end. Loving the fight rather than, than loving the purity for which they fight, if you will. Rather than actually contending for the purity of the faith, perhaps they were just contending for contention. Jesus exhorted them to remember their roots and to return to them, to do the first works as he called it, or else he would remove their light from the region as a church. He did commend them, however, not only for their zeal, but also that they hated the deeds of a group of people called the Nicolaitans. We learned a little bit about them when we considered Ephesus. We're going to consider them in further detail today as we find a church that did not hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And so we're, we're in a compromised position because of their allowance of this group of people. Last week we talked about Smyrna, a persecuted church, one of a few churches that uh, had no rebuke against them. They were suffered, suffering in patience in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, blasphemed, persecuted by the Jews of their day, imprisoned for the testimony of Jesus Christ, called to remain faithful as they were afflicted and killed and indeed were remaining faithful. At the end of each message, as we've seen, there's a common hopeful promise to the overcomer, to those that are in Christ, that with patience they will reap the joys and the benefits of eternal rest. Today we consider the third message to the third church, which is the church of Pergamos. We begin in chapter 2, verse 12, and the Bible says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Pergamos, also known as Pergamum, was a city in a valley. It's about 15 miles from the sea. It's the northernmost of the churches that we consider of the seven churches of Asia. It's a city that was very ancient in origin, as with a few others, filled with culture, filled with antiquity. The unique cultural hallmark of Pergamum, or Pergamus, is that they had a great library there. It was the greatest in the region. Tradition tells us that they had over 200,000 volumes in this library. And Mark Antony, in his day, gave it to Cleopatra before their untimely deaths. It was the second largest library in the world by uh, historical understanding, next only to that great library of Alexandria in Egypt. The city was perhaps best known for their gigantic altar erected to the Greek pantheon of gods, and more specifically, to Zeus himself. Just the altar in the center of the great complex measured 40 feet high upon which they would burn sacrifices. So you can imagine this gigantic 40-foot altar. Those beams in our church are about 20 feet high, so about double the height of our cross beams there. 40 feet high, and the, and the priest would climb to the top of that altar in order to make these sacrifices to Zeus and to the pantheon of gods. Now remember why we do these little historical exercises, why we remind ourselves of the nature of these cities at the time in which these things were written. It's not simply out of intellectual curiosity, or at least I hope not, but rather it's to understand the culture within which the Christians of Pergamos lived. Many things have changed in history. There are elements of the lives of men and women of years gone by which we really cannot relate to because of the dramatic shifts that we've had in culture and in way of life. But Christianity, the Bible tells us, is a faith, the faith, once delivered. And though times change, the indelible truths of the Word of God do not. 
Though cultures change, though societies change, though contexts change, sin is still sin, truth is still truth, and the struggles are always the same. To this end, though we cannot fully understand the times and the cultures, we can understand fully the conflict that arises in the heart of a believer that lives in the midst of such a culture. Imagine being in a city dominated by this temple and what that would mean for the church there. It is to this angel of the church of Pergamos that is written, and Jesus has uh, done and will do again with each church, introduced himself in a unique way in this particular church, to this particular church, he introduces himself as the one who hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, in this initial description of John's vision, we uh, correlate it to what John saw in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, John saw the Son of Man in the midst of the seven candlesticks holding the seven stars in his right hand, and out of his mouth came a sword, the Bible tells us. This was to signify that the sword in question coming out of the mouth of this one who we know to be Jesus is the Word of God. That's why it's coming out of his mouth. Because the sword with which he fights is his Word, the Word itself. Now, as we connect this ever so briefly to the teachings of Scripture where swords and words are combined, uh, we find two particular passages of note. In Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul describes the armor of God, He says in verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we find that that the Word of God is referenced as the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God is that which the Spirit of God takes in order to effect change, in order to, if we can say it this way, fight that spiritual battle. In relation to the Word of God, we can also find the sword and the Word related in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where the Bible says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joint and marrow, and is discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so once again, we see this correlation between the Word of God and the picture that the Word of God is as a sword that can pierce the hearts of men that can fight the spiritual battle. Now this verse does not explicitly state that the sword which he bears is the sword coming out of his mouth. Contextually, however, there is little question that this is what is being said. It's not him warning uh, about having a physical sword with which he will cut people down, but rather the offensive weapon is the Word of God, His teachings, His promises, His judgments. And in order to clarify this for complete context, just for a moment, I encourage you to look toward the end of this church's letter in verse 16. Jesus says in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with, here it is, the sword of my mouth, right? So while in verse 12 it does not say that the sword is the sword of his mouth, in verse 16 it makes it very clear that this is what we're speaking of. We're speaking of the word of God. Jesus is presented to them as having, as coming to them with the word of God, with the sword with two edges. We continue in verse 13. He says unto them, as he says to each church, I know thy works. I know thy works. It will accompany every letter. Jesus is watching. No effort, no sacrifice, no loss or no gain escapes the notice of the head of the church who is the Savior of the body. But not only does Christ know the works of the church, he also knows where they dwell. And this is when you see, and I know where you dwell, it behooves you to seek a little bit right as to where they dwell. And this is why we spent a a few moments just understanding Pergamus. But he's going to give some deeper characteristics from a spiritual sense of the nature of the city of Pergamus. Jesus describes the city as the place where Satan's seat is. The word translated seat here is the word thronos, from which we get our word throne. It is a word that speaks of not just a seat, but the seat of authority. Jesus acknowledged that this city is a satanic stronghold. 
that his throne, Satan's throne, rests in this place. There might be a little bit of a play on words here as we recognize this to be the place where this great altar was erected to Zeus, right? And Zeus being the, the, the or Jupiter, depending on if you're Roman or, or Greek culture, they're the same God, Zeus in Greek, uh, Jupiter in the Roman culture, and he being at the head of the pantheon of the, the mythological gods, of that age, uh, he would be on that throne of authority, right? He would be on that seat. And yet Paul does not emphasize the seat as it relates to these false gods, which are no gods, but rather to the fact that through them, Satan has a stronghold in this city. Let us ever be mindful, and we'll come back to this in our application, of the reality that there are spiritual strongholds on this earth. There are places where the spirit of God and the spirit of Satan, where the power of, the, uh, of each one of these, the en- power of the enemy and the power of God are stronger based upon the culture and the area in which they are. Places where the darkness of this world is strong and the opposition to the truth is indeed greater. And such was the case in Pergamos. They were in a very dark area. There was a, a satanic stronghold here and Jesus knew that. This would affect Jesus' understanding of the nature of being a believer in Pergamos, of functioning as a church there, of their success, of their suffering, of their concerns. He commends them for holding fast to his name in the midst of these tremendously difficult circumstances. He says that they had not denied his faith. Even in the days, he says, when Antipas was his faithful martyr. The word translated martyr is simply a word which means witness, Indeed, the 34 times the word is used in the New Testament, 29 of, uh, of those 34 times, it's simply translated witness. The English word martyr oftentimes uh, is a label given to someone who suffers or dies for their truth claims. Uh, and that's what we call a martyr. But the, the actual word was much broader in the Greek. It's simply a word which means to, be, to bear witness to something. And it just so happens that those who bore witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in this particular age were often, as we use the term today, martyred for their faith. Either had to undergo great suffering or indeed were killed for their faith. Now in this context we find that Antipas was one that we would call in our English a martyr. He was a faithful witness of the gospel and for this faithful witness he was killed. We learn a few things about this. Jesus describes this martyrdom as having been slain among you, slain among the believers. And take special note here of a change in pronoun. One of the greatest blessings of our King James translation is these pronouns. And I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. And uh, it's, it's something that we need to be looking for because in particular passages of Scripture, including this one, it really does matter. So throughout every church... God has referred to these churches as a single unit, right? We've mentioned this. I know thy works. Whenever we see a thee, thy, or thou in our King James Bibles, there's a second person singular pronoun in the Greek, meaning one person or one entity is being spoken to. By this we know that Paul, or excuse me, Pete, uh, John, that's, who, that's who's writing here, John and by proxy Jesus saw the church as one entity as he was writing to them. And yet we see a change in pronoun reference here. These pronouns do not change arbitrarily, and they help us understand something about the audience and the messages that's being spoken. So here we find a definitive shift from the second person singular pronoun, I know thy works, where thou dwellest, and thou holdest fast my faith, to, as we get toward the end of this verse, wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you. Ye, your, you, in our King James Bibles, reflects a second person plural pronoun in the Greek, meaning that it's speaking to a multitude of people or a multitude of entities. And so we have switched from thou, speaking of the church as a group, to you, speaking of the individuals in the church. Now that's a little bit backwards, right? Because normally thou would be to an individual and you would be to a group. But in this case, as we see thou, thy, they being spoken of as an entity, an entity context to the church, we recognize that when he changes his pronoun reference to you, he's saying you as individuals. And what this tells us about the martyrdom of Antipas is that when he says that they were slain among you, it doesn't just mean that 
he died and the church heard about it. That someone within their church heard or knew that he had died. But rather, most likely, what this means as we see this pronoun reference change is that he was killed among them. That they were together and he was slain in their sight. Most likely what this means. I'm interpreting a little bit here. But that's how I interpret the change in pronoun reference. And he says that they were slain, likely in their presence, where Satan dwelleth. Now, once again, a little bit of interpretive speculation here. We would probably understand the seat of Satan within this city to be that grand temple. I think that that would be a pretty fair assumption, having a grand temple to Zeus, that that would be the seat of Satan. And he says that Antipas was slain as a martyr among them where Satan dwelleth. Perhaps it was the case that these believers were standing either within or without of that temple proclaiming the word of God to those that were going in to the temple. And perhaps it was that as these, this group of believers were proclaiming the word of God to those going in and out of this temple of Zeus, Antipas was singled out and killed in an attempt to silence their witness. Again, this is speculation, but seems reasonable within the realm of the, the context as it, as it uh, is given to us. Throughout it all, however, what Jesus tells this church is that they had held fast to his name. They never denied the faith, even in the days when Antipas was his faithful martyr. So the church had some things going for it, but all was not great. All was not positive. We find in verse 14, Jesus says, but I have a few things against thee. Notice the pronoun reference changes back to thee. I have a few things against thee because thou hast them that that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Jesus begins his list of grievances, things for which the church is offending him as the head of the body. And his particular grievance with this church is, as we will see in verse 15, that they had allowed a group of false teachers called the Nicolaitans into their midst. I'm not actually going to to talk about verse 14 first, Balaam and Balak. I'm going to go there in just a moment and we're going to learn about them. But first I want to go ahead briefly to that verse, verse 15, and talk about it. I'm going to read verse 14 and 15 again together in context. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, that would be a spiritual fornication, and to commit fornication physically speaking. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So we mentioned in our teaching to the church of Ephesus a couple of weeks ago just a little bit about the Nicolaitans, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to cover that again so that we can understand it in, in this context. It was a group that taught heresy in the days of the early church. We know that Ephesus had straightly rejected their heresy so that God says, he commended them saying, you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So God hated this stuff. We know that, uh, um, that by church tradition, church tradition believed that um, the heretical sect was named after one of the early church deacons, namely Nicholas of Antioch. So we read in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, the commission of the deacons, and we read this, Wherefore, brethren, look, out, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now there's nothing in the Bible that states or even implies per se that this Nicholas was the inspiration to the heresy of the Nicolaitans. It's only a church history, a church tradition statement that he was. Also, we must be careful to note that just because a man is, just because a a heresy is named after a man, does not mean that he was a heretic. 
There are many a time in, in church history where we've had a man who is rightly adjusted, rightly adjusted in doctrine, but who has a different flavor or emphasis, and his followers take that flavor or emphasis and turn it into heresy over the course of a generation or two. So we don't necessarily need to cast dispersion on this man one way or another uh, as we read about him in the scriptures. But either way, what we do know is that by the, the, really the first, into the first and primarily into the second generation of the church, this heresy of the Nicolaitans had taken on a life of its own within the church. Going back to verse 14, we find that Jesus' rebuke to this church speaks of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans as, if I can call it this way, a reincarnation of the doctrine of Balaam. Uh, we learn about Balaam in the book of Numbers, and we're going to go there in just a moment. It is uh, absolutely common within the church for error simply to, to rear its head, then to be put down, and then to come back in another form with another name in a generation or two or three. So this is something that we would expect, something that does not go away. To understand properly what the doctrine of Balaam is and how it relates, we're going to spend a portion of our time today studying the, the account of Balaam and Balak in Numbers chapter 22. We are going to be in there for a, a, for a little while, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you certainly may. As always, it will be up on the screen behind me as well. And it's going to be a portion of Scripture, so bear with me as I read a, a chunk of Scripture here. Numbers chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, the Bible says this, And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side, Jordan, by Jericho. And Balak the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid because of the people, because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, so we have the Moabites and the Midianites here, now shall this company lick up all that are round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was the king of the Moabites at the time. He sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too many for me." Peradventure I shall prevail that we may smite them and that I may drive them out of the land. For I wot that he whom thou blessest is blessed and he whom thou cursest is cursed. And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. And they came unto Balaam and spake unto him the words of Balak. And he said unto them, Lodge here this night and I will bring you word again as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hath sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which covereth the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them, peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up, and they went unto Balak and said, Balaam refuseth to come with us. Now many things are going on here. Balak, the son of Zippor, is the king of Moab. He's very concerned about Israel coming up out of Egypt. They're still um, headed toward the promised land. And he's very concerned about them because the Amorites had been entirely destroyed. Their numbers are massive and God is blessing them. God is on their side. So Balak sends to a prophet named Balaam, a diviner, the Bible says. He's the son of Beor in Pethor. And he is well known as a prophet and diviner of his day. Balaam has a very close connection to the spiritual. As we see within this passage, he speaks to, he communicates even with God, the Lord himself. Now, in our Tuesday night study, we have um, spent some time on Balaam. And as we compare what the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in Jude about Balaam, we came to the conclusion, and I'm not going to substantiate this all in this uh, in this forum today, it's not really our focus today, but we came to the conclusion that Balaam is not actually a man of faith. He is not a servant of God. He is what we would call a false 
prophet. He was no stranger to the authority and the power of God, but he loved, 2 Peter tells us, the wages of unrighteousness. And 2 Peter uses him as an example of a warning to the church of false teachers in our day who make merchandise of the church of God. So Balak asked Balaam to curse the nation of Israel because he knows that Balaam is powerful in the spirit realm. And whoever Balaam curses, that people or that person is cursed. Whoever he blesses, that people or those persons are blessed. So he hears their request and he asks them to stay one night so that he can discern his answer. God appears to him. God speaks to him and he says, you may not go with the people. You may not curse this people. That is the answer. Balaam arises the next day and he says, nope, can't do it. Can't go with you. Can't curse the people. God said, no, you may go now. Good job, Balaam. He's doing all right so far. So Balaam sends the people. They go back to Balak. They say, I'm sorry. Uh, Balaam said he would not come with us. At this point, I'm not going to read anymore. I'm going to summarize some things for you. Balak is not satisfied. He wants Balaam's help. So he sends more money. He sends more honorable princes. And he, when Balaam sees this, he looks and he says, well, God said no, but let me ask him again. Let me see if he changes his mind now that there's more money involved. Right? As if God would change his mind because there's more money involved. And this is where Balaam's love for money overrode anything that he knew or understood about the character of God. And so he asks God again. His priorities have changed. And Balaam falls into what we call the permissive will of God. The permissive will of God is something that is extremely dangerous. It is where we, as as, uh, someone who is seeking God's will... We receive the answer from God. We know clearly what is right and what is wrong. And yet not being satisfied with that, having a desire of our own, we continue to seek God's permission to do that which we know is against his will. And when we seek God's permission to do that which is against his will, the Bible tells us in in relation to Balaam that when Balaam came and asked God again, can I go with them? God said, you may go with them, but you may not curse the people. Well, does this mean that God had changed his mind? No, God has not changed his mind. But what is happening here is what we call the permissive will of God. When we speak of the permissive will of God, it is a circumstance where God has told you his will, you know his will, but you have rejected his will, and then you ask for something that you know is outside of God's will, and he actually gives it to you, not because he wants you to have it, but because he is not going to interfere with your will free will. And this is a very dangerous place to be. It means that you have irrefutable facts that contradict the actions you're taking. It means you know it's not God's will, but you've convinced yourself it's God's will, and God is not closing the doors. He is opening the doors for you, even though it is not His will. He is not resisting you, even though it is not His will. This is the permissive will of God, and it leads to destruction. God does let his people go down this path if they harden themselves to his commands. But it is not the path of blessing. It is a path to destruction. So Balaam is going down this path. All along the way, God is resisting him. The angel of the Lord stands against Balaam as he's riding his donkey. And he turns his donkey to one side, or the donkey turns to one side in order to not, uh, uh, in order to avoid the angel of the Lord. And, and Balaam Uh, uh, gets hurt and so he smites the donkey and then turns to the other side uh, when the angel is in the way and and he smites the donkey and eventually uh, he's going along the way and it's between two rocks and and, and Balaam has or the donkey has nowhere to go and so the donkey just falls out from under Balaam lest they get to the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord kill Balaam Balaam's angry he's beating this donkey God allows the donkey to speak and the donkey rebukes Balaam saying look the angel of the Lord is in front of me with a sword ready to kill you because you're doing this. So the angel of the Lord appears to Balaam, and Balaam says, well, if you want me to go back, I'll go back. You just tell me. Here's the problem. God had already told him. Balaam is looking for an excuse to go forward. Balaam is not looking for, he's not repenting and turning back. If he had any sense at all, any spiritual sense at all, he'd have said, I'm out of here. The angel of the Lord is resisting me, ready to kill me. But he didn't. He asked again, can I go forward? So God let him go in the permissive will of God. God didn't close. God, God was resisting, but God let him go. So he ends up there. He gets there. He, he arrives and he, he tells Balak, I'm sorry, I can't curse the people. I've already told you that. Balak says, well, do it anyway. And Balaam tries. 
he actually then attempts to curse the people. And this is where we come to a circumstance that we call the overriding will of God. God will allow you to go your own way. He will not limit you with respect to your free will. But if you would seek to destroy his purposes otherwise, at that point he will resist you and override you. So Balaam attempts to curse the nation of Israel. And every time he opens his mouth to curse them in the spirit, a blessing comes out. Three times he attempts to curse Israel. Three times instead he blesses them. What's going on here? God overriding Balaam's will, thwarting his purposes. If I might illustrate, we've talked before about the idea that God's sovereign will is like an ocean liner going from New York to, to, um, to the other to Europe. And as that ocean liner is, is going from the east coast of the United States to the west coast of Europe, it has a path. And while, while on that path, the people on the boat have freedom to do what they will. They can go eat when they want. They can sleep when they want. They can do what they will. They, there are different uh, programs and activities set at certain times, and they can be there or they can not be there. And they have complete uh, uh, operational freedom within the, the context of the boat. But no matter what they do, it's not changing where the boat's going. God's sovereignty remains. The boat is going from point A to point B, but the people on the boat have the freedom to do what they will within it. Now, that being said, there are locked doors. They don't let you into the engine room. They don't let you into where the captain is, is steering the ship. And if you were to attempt to get into the engine room and sabotage the ship, or, or, or if you were to attempt to get into uh, uh, the room with the navigators and actually steer the ship off course, then you would be resisted because you are attempting to do something which is not your right. So Balaam is on this ocean liner and he has the opportunity to do what he will and he's making wrong choices and God's letting him do that. But at the point where he attempts to steer the boat, God is going to override his will and resist him. And that's what we see in Balaam's case. So Balaam attempts to fundamentally alter God's sovereign purposes by cursing a nation that God has called blessed. It does not work. He opens his mouth to curse them, and blessings pour out. This, of course, frustrated Balak and also Balaam. Three times Balaam tries to curse Israel. Three times he blesses them. And so Balaam and Balak go their ways. They, they separate. And we read this in Numbers 24, verse 25. And Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. But this is actually not the end of the story. And the links to this account in Numbers 25 are subtle, but no doubt there. We continue in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says this, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat, and bowed, them, bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, that would mean the God of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. So here we have a very interesting circumstance. Directly after Balaam fails in his attempt to curse Israel, we find that there's a change in Moabitish strategy. Whereas their first strategy was get this, this, this diviner to spiritually curse them, then they send their women, the Moabitish and Midianitish women, into the culture, women with no moral inhibition, prostitutes, into the camp to prostitute themselves with the men. Some of the Midianitish women join in here. And these women lead the men to worship false gods, feasting and bowing down to the false gods. Now, if you were to continue to read in the text, you'd find that for this evil and corruption, God plagues the camp of Israel. Of course, uh, Moses tells uh, his judges to slay the men of Israel. At the end of this circumstance, by the time Eleazar, the son of Aaron, uh, kills a, a man and one of the princesses of, of Midian, and in doing so, assuages God's wrath against the people. By the time the whole ordeal was over, 24,000 men in Israel had died. It's a lot of people. The camp is cleansed, so we read in Numbers 25, verses 16 through 18, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Vex the Midianites, 
and smite them, for they vex you with their wiles, wherewith they have beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the prince of Midian. That was the one that Eleazar killed, the woman. Their sister, which was slain in the day of the plague for Peor's sake. Interesting, he does not explicitly mention the Moabites here, but we find that God had mercy on them because they were the children of Lot, Abraham's nephew. So because they were the children of Lot, God did not utterly destroy them as he did the Midianites. The Midianites were utterly destroyed, and the battle is recorded in Numbers chapter 31, where the nation fought against the king of Midian and destroyed them. And we read this in Numbers 31, verses 7 and 8. And they warred against the Midianites as the Lord commanded Moses and slew all the males. And they slew the kings of Midian beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba, five kings of Midian. Notice this, here it is. Balaam also the son of Beor they slew with the sword. God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Balaam is not spared in judgment because he is among the wicked on that day. What is interesting is that it is not until the New Testament that we see the biblical link between the harlots of Numbers 25 as they went into the the nation and caused the nation to sin and Balaam himself. But that's what we find in verse 14, isn't it? I have a few things against thee, Revelation 2.14, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Revelation tells us this is what happened. Balaam wanted the money. He wanted the honor. He wanted to be the one that would get the honor from this people and the money from this people for helping them defeat Israel. But he couldn't have it because his efforts ran contrary to the word of God and to the spirit of God. So God was not allowing him to open his mouth and to curse the people. So he came at the problem from a side door. He told Balak, if I can't curse them, then force God to curse them. If I can't spiritually lay down a curse upon the people, then cause Israel to willingly place themselves at, in, in uh, opposition to God, and then God will have to curse them in His justice. Then God in His attributes, in His holiness, will be forced to curse the nation because they are in contradiction to the Word of God. So Balaam tells Moab and Midian to send their prostitutes to fornicate with the men, and through this influence, to lead them into spiritual prostitution, to cause them to worship false gods, and in doing so, God himself, in consistency with his character, will curse the nation of Israel, as God even promised to do. It's a devious plot. And it's one of the most common tactics that Satan uses. God protects his people, but he cannot ignore their sin. And so what does Satan do? He causes the people of God to prostitute themselves spiritually. To enter into sin willingly and then the protections fall. And then they're easy. Because they're weak. Because they're unprotected. In the days of John, the church of Pergamos, the Nicolaitan doctrine reflected this same evil. We don't know all of what that means. But whatever this sect taught, it caused the people to commit adultery, fornication, to worship idols, to spiritually defect. This is the side door to slip in error so that God's people will be weakened and Satan can have his stronghold. And whatever the doctrine of Balaam or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans or any other incarnation of the same evil, the church of Ephesus reminds us that it is a thing which God hates. We continue in the text, verse 16. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Take careful note of the pronoun change again. He says, repent, or I will come unto thee and fight against them with the sword of my my mouth. Well, in one sense, that sounds pretty good, right? Well, sure. Jesus, come fight against them, right? That's a good thing. Pastor, if the warning is not against the righteous, then why should it matter unto them? Wouldn't they want Jesus to come and fight against them? Well, no, this is not what any church wants. 1 Corinthians 11, in regard to the Lord's Supper, Paul says in a warning that we should judge ourselves. And he says that if we would judge ourselves, then we should not be judged 
of God. In Corinth, the judgment was that many were sick among them and many slept or that some died. Indeed, it's always far better if we can judge and correct the church ourselves rather than God having to divinely chasten out of the church evil. Because when he has to come in and we, when he has to judge, there is a severity that can lead to uh, great sorrow. Far better that we would judge ourselves, that we would separate from ourselves those wicked people, that we would maintain a purity among ourselves. Not to say that Jesus is not involved, but rather than Jesus having to judge his church, having to purify his church. Our passage ends today with the common call, extending the lesson beyond just that church to all churches that would hear and to all overcomers. He says in verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. He that hath an ear, let him hear. If you have the Spirit of God within you, if the Word of God if the Spirit of God has taken the Word of God and has shown something to you, listen. He that hath an ear, listen to what the church said to the church to, to what, what the Spirit said unto the church. And then he gives this promise to the overcomers. To all of those who are believers, those that have overcome a hopeful promise, remember that as an overcomer, he says, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life in John. There's a lot of uh, contention, as to, or, or un, un, not, not necessarily contention. There's a lot of people that, that disagree about what this means, the hidden manna and the, the stone, the white stone, and in the stone, a new name. But we know this, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And we know that the bread of life is the inheritance of the saints. We know that the sustenance of life, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. As Jesus stands in this particular passage, as the one having the sword that's coming out of his mouth, that he calls them to live by the word of God, and in doing so, they'll have the hidden manna. That which man does not just live by bread alone, but by the words of God. Live by the words of God. That's what I believe this means. And then he promises them a white stone, and in the stone, a new name written. The idea of giving a, a stone, a white stone, uh, many believe this here perchance to be a precious stone, such as a diamond or something of, of the sort. But in that written, a new name. A name all throughout the, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that Jesus had a name written upon him which no man knew. Perhaps that is the new name written, that we become inheritance to the same blessing as our Lord, as co-inheritors with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One way or another, it is this that we know. This is a hopeful promise of redemption to the church. And to Pergamus, they would need this because on that day, they were probably tired. They were probably discouraged, but they were faithful. However, they needed to be purified. This hope, this anticipation, it's intended to call us unto that obedience, unto that purity. It's intended to call us unto that, that, that determination. As 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3 tell us, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. I can't tell you all of what it means that we'll have the hidden manna, or that we'll have the, the stone with the new name written, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him, in him, what does he do? He purifies himself. Even as he, Christ, is pure. I don't know all of what it means that we'll have the hidden manna or that we'll have the white stone with a new name written in it, but I know this, that when he appears, we'll be like him. And because we have this hope, because Pergamus had this hope, they needed to purify themselves. They needed to get rid of the Nicolaitans. Because we have this hope, we need to purify ourselves as well. And with that in mind, let's apply this morning. Point number one of our application, a reminder, spiritual strongholds exist. Spiritual strongholds exist. Jesus calls Pergamus, perhaps more specifically that altar found in the midst of the city, the place where Satan's seat is and where Satan dwelleth. 
These statements give us a window into elements of the spirit realm, a topic which the Bible says very little about, actually, in clarity at least. What we find here is that there are places upon this earth where, through the efforts of men who dedicate themselves unto evil, they create an atmosphere that is very friendly to the forces of evil. In these places where darkness is strong, light shines all the more brightly, but it is also all the more intolerable. To this end, these spiritual strongholds, these negative spiritual strongholds, are very difficult to break are only broken by the power of God, often by spiritual, emotional, and physical sacrifice by the men of God who have been called to go into that darkness and to break those spiritual strongholds. If you've ever read missionary biographies of men going into places where there are spiritual strongholds, the jungles of Papua New Guinea, into places in China during the the time when China was being heavily evangelized, Places all around the world where there were spiritual strongholds due to uh, unresisted enemy activity for generations, perhaps. You know that the men that labored there often labored with their lives. Think of Jim Elliott and the Aka Indians in South America as well. Where there are these spiritual strongholds. are, Are they overcomable? Absolutely, through the Spirit of God but oftentimes at a great cost. The satanic strongholds of our day and our culture are not a mystery. Places where darkness prevails, where evil is evident, where the light of truth is scorned and hated and snuffed out as quickly as possible. Satanic strongholds are evident in our seats of culture. Hollywood is a satanic stronghold. The music industry is a satanic stronghold. Many of the halls of power in politics, are satanic strongholds. While that's not a pleasant thing to say, while it's a a thought process that might chafe, particularly at those that enjoy the, the things that come out of Hollywood and the music industry and politics to one degree or another, um, I think it's irrefutable that this is indeed the case. The implicit lesson of Pergamos is that a Christian can yet operate within these strongholds. These strongholds can even be torn down, but often at great cost, as Antipas, who was a faithful martyr who was slain among them. Notice, however, as I gave the point, I didn't say satanic strongholds exist. I said spiritual strongholds exist. God's strongholds can be erected as well. Places where darkness is simply not comfortable. Places where sin does not have the chance to abide. Places where the light and truth find free course. Where culture within that stronghold is of peace and of joy in those things which are of God. Where there is spiritual obedience rather than rebellion at its core. This is what Pergamos was intended to be in the midst of this satanic stronghold an oasis in the desert, if you will. And Christians, this is what Legacy Baptist Church needs to be. We need to be a stronghold of God in the midst of a wicked and perverse culture. This is what your family needs to be. Your household ought to be a stronghold of God in the midst of a wicked and perverse culture. Guard these spiritual strongholds. Make them strong in the spirit. Keep them pure. Do not allow the culture of the world to invade the spiritual strongholds. Now again, when we talk about the world, I'm not saying everything that is outside of the the doors of, of the church. I'm saying the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That is what is in the world according to 1 John. I'm not saying that every single thing that culture has within it is evil. But the culture itself is bent toward evil. The culture itself is a stronghold of Satan. And where you find the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life operating as the norm, as the the function of culture, Satan is there. And where you see it snuffing out the light, rejecting the light, refusing anything that is of the light, it's a stronghold of Satan. Our houses need to be strongholds of God. 
Our households need to reject that which would enter into it, the lust of the eyes, uh, the, the um, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we need to pursue that which is of God. We need to make a culture that is of God in purity and in peace and in joy. And this leads to our second point. How do we protect against a satanic stronghold? What is the greatest risk uh, to the lessening of godly strongholds in our lives and to our churches and to our families? Well, church, it's the doctrine of Balaam. According to 2 Peter 2.15, Balaam, for all of his abilities, loved the wages of unrighteousness. He chose the cares and the priorities and the promises of this world above the purity of the faith and obedience to God. When it was time to encroach upon the godly stronghold of the nation of Israel, Balaam knew exactly how to do it. He came in through the side door, getting the people of God to love something that is not of God, to love something that God hates. And then through that thing, introduce idolatry. And then through that idolatry, God can no longer bless his people. The warning is about false representatives of Christ bringing in idolatry into the church. If we connect the concepts of the day of Balaam, here's what we find. The heresy of a spiritual group at that time called the Nicolaitans was the harlot attempting to infiltrate the camp. They claimed to be followers of Christ, but in works they denied him. They may have come in the garb of truth, in the sounds of truth, in the mantle of truth, but by their fruit, the Nicolaitans had the fruit of error, not of truth. And as the church of Pergamos allowed them into the church, suffered their errors because of whatever reason, maybe they sounded good enough, maybe they had all the right answers even though they weren't bearing the fruit, as the church of Pergamos allowed that to operate unencumbered within the church, the warning was that they would follow the same path of Israel in the day of Balaam. That the doctrine of Balaam would lead them into idolatry and cause the chastening hand of God upon them. And this is why we must be so careful. We need to be careful about who we listen to in our, in our ministry circles. You need to be careful about which podcasts you listen to, which preachers you listen to. All preachers are not made equal. There are ministers everywhere which carry the mantle of truth but deny the power of that truth. They follow the doctrine of Balaam and if you follow them, they will lead you into idolatry in the name of God. There are ministries that lead us, that lead the church into the world rather than leading the church into Christ. That appeal to the nature of the world, to the philosophies of the world, to the loves of the world. And what I mean by the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I don't just mean because it exists outside these doors. There are ministers, ministries that lead the church into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, maybe even in the name of God, maybe in Christian ways, maybe in the garb of Christ, but they lead the church into the world and it's spiritual idolatry and it's the doctrine of Balaam. They pervert our worship so that we serve idols in the name of God. They pervert our doctrine so that we serve idols in the name of God. They lead us to a love for the things of the world, the darkness of this world, the philosophies of men rather than the truths of God. And we must guard ourselves. The danger is not just in our churches, it's in our homes. Guard your home, fathers, mothers. Guard your home. Make it a haven of obedience to the Lord, of doctrinal purity. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. The good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore by their fruits ye should know them. Ye shall know them. The Word of God tells us what is pure and what is right, not just in word, but in deed. The Word of God establishes what is a spiritual stronghold, what it looks like, and what a satanic stronghold looks like. And it has nothing to do explicitly with actions, but rather of the spirit with which those actions are done and the fruit that it bears. Notice they're called wolves in sheep's clothing. 
If they came as wolves in wolves' clothing, you could identify them just fine. But the fact that they look like sheep, sound like sheep, means that you can't just look at them and know. You can't even just listen to them uh, on a a small basis. In other words, you can't just hear a small portion of what they have to say and know because they're going to use the right words. They're just going to redefine those words because they're going to use the right phrases and ideas, but they're going to redefine those phrases and ideas. And you're not going to know until you see the fruit of their teaching and what they actually mean by what they're saying. So Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 20 tells us the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are manifest, verse 19, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. I'm not going to define all those for you today. We've defined them before. I will define them again. I'd encourage you, if you aren't familiar with this list, to study it a little bit. Of the which I tell you before, Paul says, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the fruit of the flesh. That's the, that is the work of the flesh. When these things are manifest in a person's teaching, in a person's ministry, in a person's life, it doesn't mean they're explicitly an unbeliever, but it means they are dominated in some way, shape, or form by the flesh. If it dominates them entirely, then they, then they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, Meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Where the works of the flesh exist in our homes and in our churches, there are places where we are opening ourselves up to danger. Those are chinks in our armor. Those are gaps in our strongholds. And if our homes and church look only like flesh, if the principles of truth are not comfortable or natural in our homes, if the principles of truth are not comfortable or natural in our churches, and there are churches where the principles of truth do not find a home, If they are not at home there, then a satanic stronghold is either already exists or is being built. Where the works of the Spirit exist in our homes and churches, where the fruit of the Spirit manifests in our homes and in our churches, these are places where we have yielded to the doctrines of Christ. We are walking in the Spirit. If our homes and our churches look only like Spirit, (laughs) and the principles of truth are at home and natural in our home and in our churches, that's where we are building a spiritual, godly stronghold. And that's what we want, folks. This is what we should be looking for in the lives of our children, in our own lives, the fruit of the Spirit. This is what we should be looking for in the life of our church as a body. This is what we want to see working in our body. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. This is where, how a spiritual stronghold is built for God. What does your faith look like? What does your life look like? What does your family look like? What does our church look like? Has the doctrine of Balaam found a place in our church? Where is it? Let's get it out. Has the doctrine of Balaam found a place in your home? Where is it? Get it out. Has it found a place in your own heart, the doctrine of Balaam? Identify it. The Spirit of God will help you. Then get it out. And be careful. Because as the Spirit of God identifies it, If we try to rationalize it away, say, God, can't I have that? Well, maybe he'll just start opening the doors like he did for Balaam. And next thing you know, we are on a path toward destruction. Be careful. One final brief reminder as we close. I mentioned it earlier. I mentioned it again. This is our final point. New error is really recycled error. As we studied in Ecclesiastes for several months last year, we reminded ourselves uh, of that which Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. The doctrine of Balaam is some 3,000 years old at this point. 2,000 years ago, it existed, among other places, in the heresies of the Nicolaitans. It's changed names, it's changed forms, it's changed applications. The Nicolaitans aren't still around in name, but they certainly exist in spirit. False spiritual enterprises which, in the name of Christ, draw churches and families and people away from the established word of God to, in the name of God, serve idols. And it should not be named among us. In this message, Jesus told the church to repent or else he would come quickly and fight against them with the word of his mouth. He would judge with the word of his mouth 
And the moral of the story is this, church, parent, Christian, let us judge ourselves lest we be judged. Let us judge our own hearts. Let us judge our own families. Let us judge our own churches. Church, in this case. Lest we also be judged of the Lord. And through self-inspection, let's make our church and our homes and our lives spiritual strongholds where truth lives, where truth thrives, where the virtuous find a place of rest, where error might approach, but even if it came in, it's just simply not comfortable here, where those in error come when they're seeking the light, not when they're seeking a cloak for their darkness. Is that our church? If it's not, let's change it. Are those your, is this our families? If it isn't, Fathers, let's make some hard decisions and let's change it. If it isn't your heart, why not? Let's change it. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.